For the record, I'm not a carpenter girl. <laughs> so tonight we're reading from 1 Corinthians, and it's all of chapter 10, and I'll be reading from the first verse to the 13th. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day... 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Therefore, my dear friends, free from adultery, I speak to the... I speak to the sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks to participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break in participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake for for the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that then a sacrifice offered to idol and anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are often to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to participate with the demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of the demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of the demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. 
For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced for denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. It's the word of the Lord. Just, here we go. Yes, I just wanted to say thank you, Carpenter family. I think they're worth, worthy of a round of applause, don't you think? Even though I dropped my Bible. <clears throat> Excuse me for a minute. I'm doing well tonight. It's good to be back with you all. <laughs> we've been away for about five weeks, although I have, we've been back for a couple of weeks now. But uh, had a fantastic time in Alaska and Canada. And uh, it's, it... Whilst it was a lovely holiday, it's always good to be home again. As they say, there's no place like home. And, um, and uh, I'm doing really well tonight, actually. I'll just turn that off. There we go. I think that's off. I still sound a bit hollow. Be good if we prayed. Let's do that. And uh, let's see what God's got for us here tonight. Loving Father, we thank you already for the uh, precious time that we've had as we've met with you. And just to be still in your presence, to be able to also sing our praises and to uh, focus our attention on you. And we thank you that we're able to do that tonight. And so we ask that you help us, Lord, to not be distracted. Uh, by other things tonight but that we might just give full attention that you'd help us to really just fix our eyes on Jesus tonight and to hear what he has to say to us he's always worth listening to so Lord help us we pray to enjoy the presence of the Lord and to have him speak into our hearts tonight we pray in Jesus name amen amen um reading through uh 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and you'd think with, and we had a fantastic time, and I'm not going to rave on about this, in, in Alaska and in Canada, and lots of things happen, and that'll all perhaps come out one day, and I'm sure God will use many examples and illustrations. We had some marvellous times, and those, what we expected to happen was these divine appointments, Then I'm sure that you know exactly what that means, that when you go away somewhere, God just brings people across your path sometimes, just out of the blue, and you just get to share a little bit about your, your faith and so on. <clears throat> Well, I thought something like that might come out tonight, but it didn't. Because as I read through this, I had another image that came into my mind. And it happened to me when I was probably about eight or nine years of age. <clears throat> in fact, I think I may have even shared this story. You see, as a child, um, one of the places we lived at was right outside the Adelaide Jail when that was open. It's now a museum. But we lived, at the, we lived uh, right next door to the Adelaide Jail. My father used to work there as a prison officer. And uh, we could see, I could stand in my backyard and actually see the prison front gate. And I can still see this image. Happened to be out there one day and I just kind of looked towards the front gate. And back then the prisons had these massive big gates like that, a big archway. 
and then they had a smaller gate in the middle. It's a little gate that people, a little door actually, that people would walk in and out of. And I was there in the backyard one day and I remember just watching there and I saw this bloke come out. Now he was a prisoner who had done his time and he was being released. And uh, he came out, he had a little kit bag in his hand. You know what these kit bags are? No? Hmm. Maybe that's a South Australian term. You don't see them anymore. I won't even worry about describing it. But anyway, look, about that long, about that high, just a little bag. That's all he had. And he, the door opened up and he kind of just walked out and just started walking up the driveway. He was released. And yet, for some reason, I thought about it afterwards, he didn't seem to be overly excited. He didn't seem to be all that happy. You expect the bloke to get up and do some star jumps and say, I'm free. But none of that happened. He just kind of picked up his bag and he just kind of walked up. And I found out later, Dad used to talk to us about a few things, and I found out, I found out later that <clears throat> some of these guys, some of them knew that their freedom would also, could also bring them trouble. You get that? Some knew that their freedom, some didn't want to go out, some dreaded, some feared the whole idea about being released because they'd been so institutionalised, they had their whole lives organised for them. Freedom was a scary thing, and I think it still is for some today. So they knew that freedom could bring them a whole lot of trouble, which could then easily land them back in jail again. Some of these characters <clears throat> were well known to the prison staff, including my dad. And we used, to, we used to know a lot of these guys. Some of them would be gardeners for us in our yard. And, and we got to know some of them. They were good blokes. Some of them were really good guys. And, um, <clears throat> and some of the staff knew them quite well. Um, knew them that they were re-offenders. They, they would re-offend. They'd get out and they'd do something. They'd be back in jail again. So they knew that the cost of their freedom sometimes was a scary thing. Um, and they had to be wise about how they used their freedom. There's one guy called Tommy, I won't mention his other name, but his name was Tommy, and I knew him quite well, even as a kid. And uh, my father knew him quite well as well, obviously. So the conversation with Tommy went something like this. So Tommy, I hear you're being released today. Tommy would go, yeah boss, I'm getting out today. And he'd say, great to hear that Tommy, see you in a couple of weeks. And that used to happen. That used to happen. But I've got to say, for Tommy, that didn't happen. When he was released, as far as I know, he never came back. He married a really wonderful lady who kept him on the straight and narrow, and she was fantastic for him. And uh, Dad got to know them both. Uh, I didn't know them, obviously. I moved out of South Australia by then, but um, that's what actually happened. See, the wiser ones, let me get to the point here. The wiser ones knew, the wiser prisoners, the ex-prisoners knew that their freedom needed to be handled wisely and not carelessly. They knew they needed to make wise choices with their freedom. And doesn't that apply to us today? We need to make wise decisions with the freedom that we have in Christ. It applies to each one of us today. For example, they knew, these ex-prisoners knew, it applies to us too. They knew what places, they knew what people to avoid, whom and what to stay away from. They knew that. They had to know that. So that they could enjoy their freedom outside the prison walls. 
The wiser ones knew that they had to handle their freedom wisely and responsibly. That way they'd stay out of trouble and out of prison and they would enjoy their freedom. If they handled their freedom poorly, then they'd end up behind bars again. And you know, I don't know, that was the image that I had as I read through chapter 10. Because it seems to me that in a similar way, Paul is saying these same kinds of things along with certain warnings to these Corinthian believers. You see, in this church in Corinth, there were those who were what I'd describe as overly self-assured of their freedom in Christ. They were overly self-assured of their freedom. They were overly assured of their spirituality and their Christian maturity. That's the sort of scene that we have with these people here in chapter 10. To a point, to a point where these particular believers, they didn't have a lot of time for Paul as an apostle. They didn't have a lot of time for him with his authority or his teaching. In other words, it seems to me again that these believers were just plain arrogant. Some of them. A real arrogance amongst some of these Corinthian believers. And again, don't we have to be watchful as Christians ourselves? Watchful, doing a check of our own hearts that we don't succumb to these kinds of attitudes ourselves in our lives or in our churches. We've got to watch ourselves. We don't fall to this carnal kind of thinking and attitudes that we see displayed in some of these Corinthians here. The Apostle Paul was called and compelled by God as an apostle. And he doesn't hold back in addressing his remarks to the Corinthians. So, for example, we read these words in, in, in verse 12. Look at this. Powerful words, good words to hang on to. He says this. So, if you think you stand, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Good warning, isn't it? I love the amplified version of that verse. In the amplified Bible it says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands, who feels sure that he has a steadfast mind and is standing firm, take heed lest he fall into sin. So that business about falling doesn't mean that you lose your salvation. We're not talking about that. I don't accept that anyway. That's my position. So we're not talking about the falling from salvation or losing your salvation here, but falling into sin. Pride goes before a fall, doesn't it? And we see this sort of thing happening right here. Some of these believers were in that place of just being overly confident and presumptuous about their freedom in Christ. And, they, and some of them had a less than satisfactory attitude towards sin. So Paul says in verses 1 to 13 here, and I'll paraphrase a little bit, then I'd like to read a few verses. But paraphrasing it, Paul basically says, hey, um, look at your forefathers. They were God's people too. They were set free too from their captors in, in, in Egypt. And they also enjoyed many privileges and blessings as God's chosen people. Look at them. And now look, I want you to look at verses 1 to 4. He says, For I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, 
that our ancestors were all under the cloud, that they passed through the sea, they were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. They, as God's people, experienced all these blessings, Paul's saying. These blessings of protection, these blessings of guidance, of provision, food and water, all those things. God provided for them all. I love this. I love this fact. I love how Paul calls their attention to the fact that Christ was that spiritual rock. Don't you? Isn't that awesome to see that in there? That Christ is the rock. He, he was that source for them, who accompanied them. He gave them all that they needed. And Christ was there for these Corinthian believers. He was their bread from heaven, as Jesus himself spoke about himself in John 6. He was the living water. He gives living water. John chapter 4, and the woman of the world so marvellously wonderfully experienced that truth in her own life when she met Jesus who gave her living water and the wonderful thing is folks that this same Jesus is here for us today he's here for you and for me today he is he is the the bread of life he's the one who gives true bread he's the one who gives living water living water that water alone that, that truly satisfies and takes away what I believe is a tormenting and otherwise unquenchable thirst. Jesus takes that away. No wonder tonight, if you've come to that realisation in your own life, have you been there yet? If you come to that realisation that only Jesus is the one that can quench your thirst, only he is the one who truly satisfies. Because I want to ask you a question just on this what have you tried and then found that it didn't deliver what you hoped it might what have you what have you tried and found that it didn't deliver perhaps what it was promised to deliver because I want to tell you what I've found true in my own life the world can't and never will be able to deliver to you what only Jesus Christ can do. I don't care where you go or what you do. Only Jesus, the rock, can give you living water. Only he, the bread of life, can truly satisfy the hunger and thirst that's in your heart. And I believe in every human heart until you meet Christ. I was privileged to be at, I was managed to get to the, the Alpha course a few times before we went away. And then when we came back, I went to uh, last Tuesday night, I think it was. Um, and I was listening to one of the testimonies that was given by a woman. This woman probably would have been in her late 40s. She had an amazing story. I only heard part of it. But what I did hear, I thought was just fantastic. I actually got her permission to share this, but I won't mention her name. So she was in her late 40s and she attended the Alpha course and she spoke about meeting Jesus in prayer. And she described that when someone prayed over her, how she physically could, 
how she physically felt a great weight lift from her shoulders. She, she described that. And she also, which I thought was quite, quite, quite awesome, amazing, was that she physically could straighten up and stand tall when that weight had lifted. Some of you know who this lady is. She just felt this huge weight lift from her. She described how she physically could actually straighten up. You see, nothing else worked for her. Nothing else worked. She'd, and she'd tried other stuff. She'd been around. She'd tried all kinds of stuff. She'd tried other belief systems. She'd tried spiritism. And it didn't work. It was only Jesus, Jesus alone who met her needs. And she so beautifully testified about it. I know she's got a long way to go yet, but she's made a fantastic start. She's met Jesus. And I want to tell you tonight, he'll meet your needs as well tonight if you let him. He's here tonight. He's here to meet needs. He's here to take the weight that some of you are carrying around and possibly have been carrying around for some years. Give it to Jesus tonight. Why are you carrying it? He came to set you free from that. See, Paul says to the Corinthian believers, your forefathers, he said, your ancestors experienced these amazing blessings, these blessings of God, verses 1 to 4. When he led them in their freedom in the wilderness. He did all these wonderful things. But then Paul says, hey, but, but listen, look at this. Know this truth, he says. He reminds them in verse 5. Look at verse 5. He says, nevertheless, all these wonderful things happened to these people who were God's chosen people. Yet he delivered them out of Egypt from bondage. He did all these wonderful things for them. Miracles provided for them. But nevertheless, he said, Paul, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And we know from scripture, and this is just again amazing, mind-boggling. We know from scriptures, the scripture records that, that of that generation, that generation that left Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And, and Pastor Darrell mentioned it this morning, probably with all those people combined, there would have been perhaps around about or perhaps even over two and a half million people, Jews and others that went with them, out of Egypt two and a half million of them and this is the thing get your head around this out of that two and a half million how many of that generation actually crossed the Jordan and ended Canaan how many can you remember of that generation that left Egypt two who were they Joshua and Caleb kind of feel the weight of where God's going with this and what he thinks about sin and our attitude toward it. So Paul's point to the Corinthians <clears throat> is in this verse, verse 6. Verse 6, this is the point here. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And then he says the same thing again in verse 11. He repeats that. Verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. 
on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Write down Romans 13 verse 11, which will explain that little, that last part of that verse. Romans 13 11. I won't go into tonight. But these kinds of sins, the kinds of sins that Israel uh, um, committed, including God's punishment, Paul lists these from verses 7 to 10. But I want you to notice too, of course, that in that mix, Paul is drawing attention to what he also knows are the same kinds of sins these Corinthian believers are committing and that they're guilty of in their overconfident and presumptuous attitude towards Christ. And again, it's what Paul meant when he used those words in verse 6. For us, he says this, to keep us. All these things happened as warnings, as an example, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Because that's, because that's what some of these Corinthian believers were doing. They were setting their hearts on evil things. They were doing the same kind of stuff that their forefathers were doing. And Paul's saying, you better, you better be careful. Look what happened to your forefathers. And you're doing the same kind of stuff. And so he says to these Corinthian believers, so he says, so don't be idolaters, as some of your forefathers were. Don't be idolaters, because Paul knew that they were. Some of them were dabbling in idolatry. Some of them were putting other things in their lives before God. I could go into a bit more of that, but the time's going to beat me if I don't keep moving. But look, you've got to work out. You've got to, you've got to ask yourself the question, what's consuming me? Is it the Lord or is it other stuff? If it's other stuff, that could be the idol in your life. Be careful about that. He says we shouldn't commit sexual immorality because some of them were. Some of the Corinthians were. But Paul says, as some of them did, being their forefathers. They did that too. He said we shouldn't test Christ, as some of them did. And verse 10, and do not grumble as some of them did. So there's some pretty daunting things there and, and sobering things for us to get our head around, isn't there? David, David Pryor in his commentary says this, Paul effectively told the Corinthians in their presumed spirituality not to boast about their spiritual condition. He says... We are all in a perilous position, says the Apostle, if once we allow ourselves the indulgence of thinking that sin does not matter. Did you get that? Mm. Warren Wearsby says something similar. He says this, that spiritual privileges never give us license to sin. Get this. Spiritual privileges never give us the license to sin. Rather, they lay upon us the greater responsibility to obey God and glorify him. I'm going to say something that's pretty obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway. Folks, as believers in Christ today, it's not okay to sin. 
It's not okay to sin. It's not even okay to accept it and go, oh, well, just happen. Get on with life. No. It's not okay to have an attitude like that. If you love the Lord Jesus, sin ought to repulse us. It ought to repulse you. It ought to repulse me. It ought to repulse us. It ought to trouble us as we wrestle with our fallen natures. Not just to wink at it or shrug our shoulders and walk off. Because the Corinthians were doing that. And Paul's saying, you're, living on, you're walking on thin ice here. It's not okay to sin. It's not okay to accept it. We need to be saying, God, I'm disgusted by this. It repulses me. Lord, help me. I'm troubled by this. You see, Paul was. Look how Paul wrestled with that in Romans 7. You need to read Romans 7, folks. See how he wrestled with those kinds of things where he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. But the things I don't want to do, I do. And he he has this wrestling between the spirit of God in him and this rotten human nature that that we still cohabit with. And there's that wrestling that's going on. Listen to what he says and how he describes it. In Romans 7:24, he says, Oh, what a wretched man I am, he says. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Can you sense the frustration? Can you sense this, this, this repulsion, this, God, help me. Set me free from this. I hate doing what I'm doing. Wretched man that I am. And wouldn't it, be so, wouldn't it be a sorry kind of a picture for him and for us if that's where Paul left it? Wouldn't it be just a defeat? But listen to the hope that he has here and what we have. In verse 25, he says, But thanks be to God who, delivered me, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the hope. There's the awesome grace and mercy of God. He delivers us through Jesus. Christ alone is our hope and our salvation because he shed his blood on the cross to forgive you and me of this wretchedness that we have and what we're all about. He he, he died on the cross to forgive us of our sin and to set us free, really free. We sung about that tonight. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And we need to practice the 1 John 1, 9 principle, that promise, that conditional promise. And I've said it many times. I'm sure you probably either memorize it. You've got it written in your Bibles. Sorry, you've got underlined in your Bibles or something like that. 1 John 1, 9. We need to practice that. When that's appropriate to practice that. And it's this. If we confess our sins, you know that one? He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Beautiful promise. And we need to know that and hang on to that. As already mentioned in verse 12, Paul's already said, let those who think they stand take heed lest you fall. So Paul's already given that warning. He's mentioned that in verse 12. He addresses that, to, that warning to those who are overconfident, to those who are overinflated, to those who may be a bit arrogant, even presumptuous. But verse 13, I want you to move, look at verse 13. That's to encourage us. That's to, to, to um, encourage those who may be fearful of the temptations. Lord, what's going on with me? Is this normal? Is this, does everybody go through what I'm going through? Is it wrong to be tempted to have these thoughts and so on and so forth? 
And Paul says this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Beautiful words. Listen to this. Verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or tested, is another word for that, tested, beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, not if, when you are tempted, when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And the reality is that part of the package of being a human being, being a fallen human being with the nature that we have in this world, is that we are subject to temptation. There wouldn't be a living soul who is not subject to temptation. The whole topic is a sermon on its own, I know that. But when Christ, we know that when Christ put on human form, he too was tempted in every way that we are. But he was without sin, as Hebrews 4.15 talks about. He was without sin, but we sometimes do. We sometimes give in. We fall into it. He never did. The key in this verse, I believe, is that God is faithful. He will provide the way out. He will help you to endure it. He is there. He is faithful. And when we fall, he is faithful and will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's a faithful God. You can depend on him. You see, but the Corinthian problem, the Corinthian problem was that they weren't looking for a way out of the temptation to endure it. But they were looking for a way to indulge in it. That's the issue here with some of these people. They weren't looking for a way out to endure it, but for a way to indulge in it, to kind of have license and justify themselves for indulging in it. And as I've said before, it's a dangerous attitude to have. Let's move on. Verses 14 to 22, Paul goes on to speak about the dangers of compromise. The dangers of, of being a Christian and compromising your faith. The NIV heading has this, if you've got an NIV, idol feasts and the Lord's Supper. And here we see that Paul has already commanded the Corinthians... If you go back to chapter 6, or remember chapter 6, he's already commanded the Corinthians in verse in chapter 6, verse 18, to flee from, flee from sexual immorality. And now he uses that same word, that same command here in this chapter, and verse 14, to flee from idolatry. Flee from sexual immorality, flee from idolatry. And here Paul goes on to explain why. By, by what this all means by using the Lord's Supper as an example you see that when believers partake of the cup and the bread think about the communion that we have here in this church the Lord's Supper it's a time of fellowship and communion with the Lord himself his spirit is amongst us as he is now it's that time when we are still before God and we contemplate him we thank him, we worship him we are in communion with Christ as well as one another, but we acknowledge with thankfulness and with worship and we enjoy the presence of God 
And we thank him for the Lord Jesus who died and rose again for us that we might be forgiven. And so we remember the cup and we remember being his, the representation of his blood and the, and the bread, his body. And so we commune with Jesus. Do you get the picture? The Old Testament priests, they had fellowship with God as they feasted on the sacrifices from the altar. So here is the problem that Paul is addressing to these believers at Corinth. And that is that, I, that an idolater, an idolater has fellowship with demons in his idolatry feast. That's the problem here. That's what is behind the idolatry. Just as we commune with the Lord Jesus around the Lord's Supper, and we have his spirit amongst us. What Paul is saying, the problem with the idolater is that they're communing with demons. And some of them don't even know that they're doing that. The idol itself, wood or stone or something, metal, nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It is nothing. On its own, it's nothing. The food offered, the food itself, is nothing. But it's what's behind that. It's the spiritual implication of it. It's the demonic presence and forces behind those idols. That is the problem. Look what Paul says in verse 19. Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. And he says this, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be part participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. And we can see here, that Paul clearly believes in the, un, the unseen spiritual world of, of, well, the unseen spiritual demonic world. He believes that. He accepts that. And I want to say to us tonight, I don't think we'd have too many problems with people saying that's a whole lot of rubbish. But I want to say if you're a believer here tonight and you believe in God's word, then we will also accept the reality of the spiritual world, the demonic world. It's a very real world. Without going into too much, sometimes these things will manifest themselves. People have seen them. It's a real world. And Paul warns against it. Don't dabble with that. This is, again, it's a huge topic, I know that, and it can lead into such other topics as spiritual warfare. And we're not doing that tonight. But as believers, as believers in Christ, we need to be aware of the satanic and the demonic world and give no place to that stuff in our lives or our daily practices. It's about being aware, isn't it? It's just simply being alert to what you're doing. It's being aware of the evil influence that are out there, and they are. And it can affect you. Um, you can be reading, I don't know, there's, there's, there's magazines around, there's books around, there's movies, there's songs. Whatever media there is, you've just got to be aware of what you're listening to, what you're seeing, what you're feeding your mind on. Because there's some pretty dark kinds of stuff out there. You might not like what I'm going to say, but I've got to tell you, I don't like stuff with vampires in it. 
personally. I'm not a fan of Harry Potter, but my daughter is, so I have some discussions with her. Vampires, zombies, you know that sort of stuff? I'm not saying, I love, I love the, the, the Marvel stuff, I love all the science fiction, but all I'm saying is be aware of what you're allowing to come into your mind. I once was talking to a guy who had dabbled with the demonic stuff and he said he saw a demon one that was like a vampire. And I guess I've got that in my mind as well. So just be aware of, of the sort of stuff that's out there. Be aware of it. Keep away from it. Um, and can I just give you a couple of tips here? If there's anything, anything that you are exposing yourself to, anything that you, be it accident or be it, be it you know, deliberate, anything that makes you feel uncomfortable or creepy, do you know what I mean? Then take note of that. Anything that makes you feel uncomfortable or creepy inside, get away from it. Get it out of your life. Remove yourself from it. Remove it from you. I think that's probably a good way to go. And then, of course, stay close to Christ. Stay close to him who has defeated Satan and all of his demonic hordes. You use the name of Jesus. His name is a powerful name. And the demonic forces cannot stand up against the name of Jesus. Powerful, powerful. Stay close to Christ. Read his word. Know his word. Love God's word. Love the Lord with all your heart. Be passionate about him. Meet him daily in prayer. Remember to put on the full armour of God. Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. If you're not sure, read that. Put on the full armour of God. Let me test your knowledge of the full armour of God. If I put the helmet on, what is it? Great, thank you. It's the helmet of salvation. Righteousness is the breastplate. Okay, the breastplate of righteousness. What else have we got? The belt is the belt of truth. My feet are shod with the gospel of peace. I pick up the shield. It is what? The shield of faith. If I take hold of the sword of the spirit, it is the sword of the spirit. It's the word of God. That's right. There it is. That kind of armor, you are impenetrable. Someone once said, when you put on the full armour of God, the Satan and his hordes don't know whether it's God himself coming after them. When you're wearing his full armour. I hope I'm not going into too much or raving on too much, but you've really got to get, get a handle on this because this stuff is real. Satanism and all these other kinds of occultish type stuff are on the rise and the church needs to be aware of it. Don't dabble with it. Keep away from Ouija boards. Keep away from that stuff. Be aware of the influence that you're allowing into your mind, into your heart. Because they're real. Be wise about what you are exposing yourself to. Good old-fashioned um, uh, key here or, or, or whatever. If in doubt, don't. If in doubt, don't. Simple as that. Finally, verses 23 to 33 here. Paul speaks about the believer's freedom in Christ. And we thank him for that freedom. I don't know about you, but I thank him every day for the freedom that we have in Christ, for such an amazing gift that he has given to us. Because why? Well, before you met Christ, you were in slavery. I was in slavery 
to sin and to death and to hell before we met Jesus. He's the one that set us free from all that. But Paul also teaches the Corinthians and he teaches us today to balance that freedom with responsibility and consideration for others in our circle of influence. Yes, we're free, but act maturely, act responsibly about that freedom. And he basically repeats the same principles of, of, of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. And it's simply this, don't do anything that would weaken your brother's conscience or cause him to stumble. So in closing, and I'm going to close now, uh, using Paul's teaching in verse 23 and 24, he says this, I have the right to do anything. You say, sorry, I have the right to do anything. You say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one, listening to this, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others it's a great principle isn't it great teaching Warren Wearsby I like what he says he says the way we use our freedom and relate to others indicates whether we are mature in Christ strong and weak Christians need to work together in love to edify one another and to glorify Jesus Christ I, I want to finish with three questions this is what I want to challenge you about just to try and sum all this up together now a good test to use from this chapter is three questions to ask yourself when you, when you make decisions and choices as a Christian. And I'm going to use the words here from verse 24. Sorry, verse 23. So here it is. So I have the right to do anything, but will they build me up or will it pull me down? I have the right to do anything, but... Will it build me up or will it pull me down? Verse 23. Second question. So I have the right to do anything, but will it only please me or will it glorify Christ? Will it only please me or will it glorify Christ? Verse 31. Thirdly. So I have the right to do anything, but will they help me to win the loss to Christ? Or turn them away from Christ. Verse 33. I have the right to do anything, but will it help me to win the loss to Christ? Or will it turn them away from him? They're the sorts of questions. It's about freedom and it's about responsibility with the freedom that we have in Christ. They're a good test to do when we start making decisions about things. That may or may not affect other people around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for the instruction that we have from the Apostle Paul. We thank you.